Jessica Banner here. Welcome to another edition of this Afropolitan Life podcast, where we have intelligent conversations and thoughtful commentary with Afropolitans from around the world about our stories, our community, and our lives. Welcome to another edition of this Afropolitan Life podcast. You know how Chimamanda always has a character in her books that's wise and feminist, outspoken, a lot of times worldly and global. Those aunties that a lot of us have or would love to have in our lives that open up our minds, make us think about things differently and challenge stereotypes and challenge traditional roles and age old social constructs. Well, today I have a real life auntie <laughs> like that. Auntie BC, or BC Ijapong, is a writer and she's an awesome, phenomenal lady. She is a force to be reckoned with. And I'm so excited to have her on the show today to talk about women's roles in film and um, African literature. Um, and as a writer herself, she's also going to talk about how to get your book published if you're interested in writing and challenging African womanhood stereotypes in literature. I can't wait for you to listen to the show. It's a long one today, so I'm just going to go ahead and get right into the podcast. All right, let's jump right in. What movie are you going to go see? Um, I wanted to see Hidden Figures. I still haven't seen it. Oh, have you seen I, it? that's a good one. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. It's a really good one. Like I actually it? want to take my seven-year-old to go see it. Oh, good. Because I saw La La Land and I wasn't that impressed. Yeah, it's a musical, right? I can't do musicals. The musicals that I can do are the really nice old ones that have a really deep story. This one was a very cliche love story. Okay. And I wonder why it's getting all the awards this year. I really don't know. I <laughs> want to gaze into Ryan Gosling's eyes. Uh, or Ryan, whatever his name is. Yeah. Right. I um, went to go see Moonlight and uh, um, James Baldwin's movie. Mm-hmm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure Negro. Those were really good. Oh, you saw? I, I imagine that would be very good because I saw it just looked as though the acting was really deep. Yeah, for Moonlight, right? Yeah. Or for... Yeah. For Moonlight. Yeah, it was so moving. I was, I was actually, I'm actually going to write about it. It's just, it was just really touching in a very uh, uh, interesting way. <laughs> and, and did you see Hidden Faces? I'm no fences. No, I didn't see fences. Hidden fences. That, yeah, I that was the hashtag. I didn't see fences. I didn't like it. You didn't? No. I love Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. He gave a powerful performance. Of course. I love uh, Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. She was just stunning. Mm-hmm. But I really, you know, I guess because I'm Ghanaian, I can't relate to this black American woman that is um, so, you know, the usual quintessential strong woman who puts up with abuse from her husband who you know right uh, you know and yes there is a reason why he was the way he was and yes he was a good provider never apologized for anything was really horrible to you know his son mm-hmm. and then when he dies then that is really where I I, I, I got you know I it, I really drew the line when he died there was a special light in the sky that made him seem glorified, almost mm. like some kind of transfiguration and almost like a kind of worship. But this, you know, it, it's it's not fair at all. And I did not see the woman 
become anything other than to refuse to give him sex, but continue to cook and clean house mm-hmm. and raise his child that he had with somebody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it made me angry because it's always that loyal, strong black woman narrative. Black woman narrative. And the black woman is never portrayed as this soft, you know, woman who also needs to be cared for and adored, you know, and that upsets me. And even in Scandal, okay, the lady is the object of love. Even she is not, I mean, even she has this, you know, really descended into some really sick, twisted sexual relationship with someone. I don't know why, you know, we can't have a black woman who is normal. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's a really good, interesting um, perspective because I was just talking with a friend yesterday mm-hmm. and we were talking about, um, it was it was along the lines of feminism, right? And yeah. um, we were talking about the uh, decision to stay home, mm-hmm. right? And uh, when I had my daughter, uh, I decided to stay home. Yeah. Even but, I did as a single parent. Yeah, and, and, uh, and she did as well. She actually decided to stay home, not when she had her kids initially, but after I think her son was in fourth grade, third grade. And then she realized that in staying home, she mm-hmm. actually self-actualized as a woman more. And she realized that there was a lot of, a lot of benefits, not just you know financial or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever other benefits external to herself, just her own personal growth. And that's one of the things that I've actually experienced in staying home and doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering as someone who communicates a lot in talking to other women, other women probably see my position as not powerful or not, uh, not doesn't feed into that black woman narrative narrative where you have to be a superwoman. You have to do it all. You have to, um, be strong, never soft. Um, and a princessy. Yeah. And, um, and I, I reject that wholeheartedly. I mean, some people would see my position as being even just choosing to be a stay at home mom would be feminist in and of itself. But a lot of black women don't see it as such. And even a lot of Ghanaian women uh, who come here with the intention to work and make something of themselves and go to school and become all powerful and then marry and then have kids, but then still work and then do all of the (laughs) above things. It's like, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I chose your, you won't believe it because I came here to be married um, and I arrived here and then when I arrived at the airport, you know, literally that very day my relationship broke, I, you know, but I, I ended it and I was wow. actually almost seven months pregnant, right? Wow. And I still managed to choose to stay at home at one point for about four years with my kids. Okay. Did do my own thing and it, it meant less money for me. But I loved being fulfilled as a woman at home and with my children. And whenever I write about stuff like that, I'm told by publishers, and you're going to get this when you start writing, and Chimamanda had to go through this, that that's not a kind of, they don't see an African woman that way. Interesting. Yes. They have this idea. If you're not writing about how you were abused or tortured or... <laughs> really? 
Yes. And so you're writing about a typical middle class Ghanaian. Yes, there are cultural issues without, you know, a, and you guys are of a different generation. But it's funny because I call myself someone with no generation because I can't relate to the people of my generation. And most of the time, the people of your generation, see, they, they just kind of classify me and they think, oh, you're too old. They have no idea how isolated I feel. <laughs> I was always rebellious. I was always very different and very ahead of my age, right? So you can't be sexy. You're not allowed to be sexy. You're not allowed to be feminine. And you're not allowed to just be a middle class person. Hmm. Unless you're writing about something really awful that happens. And that's why I really object to the way women are portrayed. Black women are portrayed in movies. It really upsets me. Now let's talk about that a little bit. What? Did, how did you grow up? What's What was different and unique about your um, about your background that I guess well, disassociates you from your generation. I think what happened was that one, my father. I don't know if you know this, but my father was uh, with Akufuado and Co, and they were against Kwame Nkrumah. Okay. So when they were about to be arrested, my father escaped to Nigeria, and that's where he met my mom. My mom was very very young and very much a, a, a princess, literally, actually. But she was also very spoiled and didn't cook or clean or do a whole lot. <laughs> so basically, that is what we did. I played with my mom. And my dad did not require me to do anything. You know, basically, my dad just went with anything my mother wanted. And as a child, I discovered that the way to get out of the kitchen, because mind you, my mother died very early too. My mother died when I was eight years old. And then we went back to Ghana. Okay. When we went to Ghana, I felt very lost. I didn't understand the language. My sisters were much older. Uh, think about it this way. When my sister was entering middle school, I was now going to class one. <laughs> So that was my stepmother's last born. Okay. So there I was all by myself with my younger brother in Ghana and in a completely different atmosphere. I didn't speak the language. And my there were like seven sisters and they were always busy in the kitchen yelling, cooking and whatnot. And I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that my father was very happy with my intellect. My father loved for me to read. He taught me to read even before I went to school. I was three years old when I was reading. Somehow, in just a small five-bedroom house, he set aside two rooms for me. One was a library and one was a tiny little sitting room. Well, it wasn't supposed to be for me, but it was (laughs) people who love to read. But since I was the only one who used it, I considered it mine. Mm -hmm. And he just filled it with books. And I couldn't read fast enough. So I realized that so long as I was reading, I didn't have to do housework. Mm-hmm. So so anytime I saw my father coming, I made sure I had a book. My <laughs> stepfather said, you know, go and clean and go wash something. My father would say, leave her alone. Can't you see she's reading? So, you know, they left me alone. And the plus side of it is that I was completely wild and raw. I had no idea what a woman was supposed to be like. I didn't know women. I heard the words, you know, I heard the women words like, oh, you better know how to cook or your husband will return your food to us and all those things. But, you know, it went in one ear and came out the other. You were a carefree African girl. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> but now, okay. my father was the only man that mattered to me, and what he, you know, what he thought of me was what mattered. And my my father never said, "Thou shalt cook, thou shalt right. clean." My father just said, "Hey, look at this girl. Exactly, She's so cooked, cooked with intelligence." That's well, what he used to say. Well, cooked. among those themes, though, you just said something, and you just said that uh, you, you weren't expected to to know what a woman. You didn't know what a woman was supposed to be or supposed to yes. be like. And so, in your context of womanhood, is that include cooking and cleaning and should it uh how do you define womanhood well, the thing is i love here's the thing i love to cook i mean i think everybody should learn how to cook if you like to eat good food you know i love to cook but i didn't like the idea that it was my duty to cook um i think that every woman should be able to do whatever they want to do so i have a friend who is a very lovely person very accomplished but she couldn't cook to save her life. I mean, when she invites me to eat, I pray that she catered. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so wherever your talent lies, please go for it. If you can't cook, I mean, I have a friend, uh, a male friend, a Ghanaian friend who is a chef. His wife can't cook. I mean, this poor woman puts, you know, cubes of ginger in some corned beef stew that... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so he does the cooking. She has other gifts. So, you know, yeah, if if you can cook, why not? If you can't, fine. But it shouldn't be, I feel as though there shouldn't be a rubber stamp that says, these are your responsibilities, and that's the only thing you're capable of doing. And this is how I saw my stepmother. And so I think that I reacted to it because she had no education and she lived in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. Mm-hmm. She would get up in the morning and she was always in the kitchen. When she wasn't in the kitchen, she was napping, recovering so that she could go back to the market and return to the kitchen. <laughs> well, yeah. You know. Yeah. So when I think of and when I whenever I think of her, my image of her is this woman with a beautiful round bottom, perpetually perched behind a pot with a very long ladle, staring away, sweat glistening on her beautiful face. That's all I That's know. I remember. And of my father upstairs yelling, "When is the food going to be ready? What is taking you so long, woman?" Yeah, well, it's interesting though. So let's look at the 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 contrast between African manhood uh-huh. and African womanhood, though. So, do you think? My question would be then: Why was your father attracted to a woman who wasn't as intellectual? Obviously, he valued intellect in women. He, you know, he he raised you to be intellectual. So, why would you say that the reason why women in Africa just kind of define womanhood as cooking and cleaning and being able to feed a, a, a man and raise a family um, is because of how, um, I guess, manhood sees it? Yeah, well, let me put this a bit in context. Remember that my father is old enough to be my grandfather, so his generation was totally different. This is somebody who was, you know, around the time that our present president's father was was there, you know, Ekufuadu, the original Ekufuadu, right? So the, their time was very different. I was born in his old age when he went into exile and he met my mom. Okay. The other thing, too, is that really in those days, if you got a woman pregnant, you married her. So he was actually 20. My stepmother was 16. She was a lovely woman. She was also a virgin. And he got her pregnant. And that was just it. You married her. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Now, the difference is that while my father went on to pursue his education, she didn't. And when I say she didn't, it's not, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm only guessing. I'm guessing that maybe because of the traditional roles of their time, she didn't feel a need to. Um, I know that my father says, or used to say since he's deceased, that he tried to get her to do other things, but it didn't work. That's according to him. I don't know what the truth is. But all I know is that I grew up in a household with a stepmother who was always in the kitchen and with her father. I, I, I actually divided the house. I said, you know, where the men lived upstairs and the women lived downstairs in the kitchen. And I was the ambassador going the back and forth. <laughs> upstairs and downstairs. I would go to my father and report things or try to calm him down if he was getting upset. And then I'll come back to the kitchen and try to help the women. <laughs> Well, nonetheless, you've become an accomplished writer. And um, let's talk about writing and um, the publishing process. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just uh, just to kind of throw back to how you were raised. Um, what, um, I wanted to kind of discuss, like you were just saying about, uh, you know, approaching publishers with uh, a storyline that doesn't fit into the stereotype for African womanhood. And you're, you know, you're defying that. Um one criticism I've, I've read, actually, um, I can't remember who it was from, but she's a writer and she's based on the continent. And she was talking about how she was sick of African literature and how it's uh, one-sided in that every single accomplished book that comes out um, that's you know dubbed African literature has this element of wanting to go to the U.S. or go to abroad or um, being set in the and abroad, or um, finally, you know, culminating uh, with the protagonist um, ending up abroad, or coming from abroad, everything has this anchor to abroad. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, the stereotypical narrative um, for African writers? Um, and yeah. how are you trying to like bust out of that? I'm not, I'm not really sure that uh, people really try to do that deliberately. I think what happens is that, you know, things that affect us deeply and emotionally we want to write about. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, for instance, when I started writing, uh, my first stories in high school were just local stories and, and other stuff. But when I came to the United States, my arrival was such an emotional shock. I had these expectations of America that I would come into America and I would see Michael Jackson and Diana Ross dancing in the streets. They kind of, <laughs> I literally thought that was what people were doing, break dancing in the middle of the road and everything <laughs> on and everybody, all, you know, all black people going, we're going to be one people and everything. And so the shock when I arrived, I kept a diary during that time, was that I wanted to tell my story because usually what you you feel is people back home don't know. Everybody's in a hurry to go to America. And let me tell you something. When I was in high school, that was the thing. Everybody wanted to either go to the UK or go to America. 
for college. And the only reason why I didn't do it right away was because my brother, who had been educated at Cambridge and Oxford University in the UK, discouraged me. He told me, you know, I don't care what the academics are. You're going to be miserable socially. You're going to, you're not going to have the cultural support. And for girls in particular, it's tough because a lot of the boys um, end up, you know, marrying white or this. I, I guess those days, but today it's not so right. so much, you know. So when you come like that and you know how your friends back home think, you have a desire to write and tell them hello this is what I went through. So I think that is what usually happens. And also people are mistaken, misguided. Even now you go home and you go to the U.S. embassy and there's a line curling around the block because people want to go. So people have the misconception that life is bad at home and it's going to get better if you go to a different place. The grass is always greener. On the other side, yep. migrants going from Morocco and what so are people from Africa who are drowning trying to get somewhere then you've got the Asia so it's always been like that we never thought of trying to develop our own um, our own country so I think what the literature has come as a result of people's own experiences and that's what people like to write about now I think that those who are at home who don't have a need, they can also write stories. I've, I've seen uh, this publisher, uh, Cassava Republic. Cassava. Yeah, they've published a really wonderful book. And the book is, uh, I think, uh, The Long Throat. Yeah, Mem- I've heard about that one. And that it's one. about Nigerian food as a metaphor. It is just amazing to me. But it's the sort of thing that I would never probably think about to write. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful. We should embrace all those writers who are, I mean, I like people writing at home. And also, the problem too is that there are also no publishers um, in Africa who are willing to actually write about contemporary African experience, except for those that are coming up, like Asava Republic, like Sarafina. These are, you know, and and I think Nigeria is really doing very well. They are quite a few in in South Africa and and one or two elsewhere. But for the most part, if we go into the Western world, well, the Western world want to know, oh, so what? why did you leave your country? Mm-hmm. What are some of your experiences, you know, that you have had here? So that is really the challenge for those of us who crossed over. Yes. For you, it may not be because you're here, so you might be writing a story about your own life here. And again, you know, how are you going to write a story about something that happened in Ghana when, you know, you haven't lived there? On the other hand, they are also, Western publishers are also very interested in stories about slavery. Now, that actually irritates me. Oh, why? Well, because I feel that there's a certain mindset. It's almost like a view of the African or the Black. Again, back to the same, you know, imagine that every Jew had to write about the Holocaust. I mean, it happened. It was a terrible thing. And we want to talk about it. But I, for one, I couldn't watch 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't bear to read it. I, I watched Roots way back in Ghana a long time ago. And I don't want to see it again. No, thank you very much. <laughs> But I read, you know, Yajasi's book. Yeah. 
publishers fought and paid over a million dollars. Yep. Get it? Why? Because it's a story about slavery. Um, do you think that's do you think that's the primary reason, or do you think that way she she wrote that book, like chapter after chapter, was a story in and of itself? Like she was well, actually every, really. Every book, chapter was a generation. It was just a stylistic yeah. uh, thing that she did, but it was like, I mean, you know, you think about. I'm not saying that's the only reason why, because she's an accomplished writer, and I'm glad that her book has been published. And hey, self self the publishing. Uh, companies right but you know what i will say the reason why i love that book not just because of slavery and this is just my opinion is that there there really hasn't been a book that's compared uh the af or paralleled the african experience Mm -hmm. with the african-american experience and seeing how it dovetailed from that historic place of slavery because i mean a lot of us africans who were here who are like cultural bridges, who understand the African side of things and then also understand the African-American side of things because we've learned about it in school and, you know, we've, we've pre- we're pretty much African-American for the most part, yeah. unless we tell you we're not. Yeah. Um, I think that there hasn't really been any kind of literature that shows you that yeah. connection. We've always known we were cousins from around the way, from a long Absolutely. time ago, but Absolutely. no one's ever really pinpointed um, so poignantly yeah. Uh, yeah. that connection. And I thought that was genius. Yeah. And, and I love it. And yeah. I love it. But what I'm also trying to say is that by the same token, you take Chiamambe's first book, Purple Hibiscus. Yeah. It's for me, you know, I love all her books. That one is my favorite. Oh, is but it? why did she have a, such a hard time selling it? The reason is because she was telling a very ordinary story yeah. about a typical family. It was dysfunctional. It was upper uh, middle class, very wealthy. Um, they had servants and all those things. And it was an ordinary story about an abusive father. They did not see that as being African enough initially. Interesting. You see my point. You're not allowed to be ordinary. Mm-hmm. You can write about the extraordinary about your life. So I'm glad that Yajasi's book has been published. And I'm, I'm also very thrilled because she's from Ghana. Mm-hmm. But you think about it. The, the subject has to be extraordinary. Take Uwem Akwan. Have you ever read Uwem Akwan? Say you're one of them. I haven't. It's on my list, but I uh, haven't. Yeah, we're good friends, uh, colleagues, and, and, and we share an agent. We have the same agent. Okay. He wrote a collection of stories about children, but it was just the most ho- horrific stories. <laughs> the stories are so horrendous that... I was only able to read two. You have to take it in a little at a time or you'll be haunted. You'll be miserable. Just so depressing. He's a brilliant writer. So he captured, so he's writing about child prostitution. In one story, my parents' bedroom, a child is hiding under the bed while the father is killing the mother, you know, in Rwanda for being uh, from a different tribe. Just horrible stories fattening for Gabon somebody is trying to sell his young niece and nephew who are what preteen into prostitution and then one manages to escape but the other is cut down then luxurious houses where a, 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 a people actually um literally like you know use the machete to kill this young man who is from the north and in, in a bus full of evil people. 
So, you know, this story exploded on Oprah, was on CNN, and Sin Cooper talked about it. Every publisher in the United States went after the book, and it went to auction. It was a collection of stories. I think there were, I don't know how many stories, four or five stories. Um, they all went after it and paid a humongous amount of money for it because this is, it's like there is a label on what it means to be African. So when you're writing about stuff like that, sure. But if you just want to write about a love story between two Africans, Nobody is interested because they can get that in the West. But the West people, uh, white people, are allowed to write those stories. Right. It reminds me of um, kind of black music, uh, where if you're a black musician or a rapper or anything, it's it, it, you you get the sales and you get the recognition when you when you sing or rap about the most extraordinary, gruesome things about being a trapper or you mm. know just kind of making a fool of yourself and you know telling things that you, you you know nothing about. It just it reminds me of that with African stories in literature. It's like the more gruesome, the more crazy, the more fantastical, the better. And mm-hmm. um, you're right. It, it, it is really hard to come by stories that are just regular, just like how it is um, very obscure to, to, to read about or see black movies or stories that are just regular black mm-hmm. love stories. One of my favorite um, films, um, black films, is this very obscure film by this, I forget the director's name, but this the movie was called All About Us and it featured um, Boris Kojo. And it was just a very slow moving mm-hmm. film about a young couple that had just had their first kid and they were living in California before they had their child um, mm-hmm. to you know kind of reach their dreams of being movie stars. And they couldn't. And in one last attempt, Boris Kojo contacts uh, um Morgan Freeman in Mississippi and they go down there to Mississippi and visit family and um, eventually um, see Morgan Freeman just riding his pickup truck down the road in Mississippi. And the, the movie was just very <laughs> insignificant. It was not even like, it, but it, it was so beautiful and just touching because I was in that time of my life where I had just had my first baby and mm-hmm. our lives were kind of chaotic. And I had this, I had this uh, passion to just go slower, just slow down. And that was kind of why I decided to stay home. Um, But it just resonated with me. And you don't see very many movies like that, especially black movies, black films. Um, So it's the same thing for literature. I can see that um, in what you're saying. Did you watch The Notebook? I did watch The Notebook. Uh, Yeah, that's a very ordinary story about two people that fall in love, a rich person and a poor person, and how, you know, their love just, you know, they couldn't just leave each other and they even died together. You write that with black protagonists and you're going to find it's very hard to sell it. Yeah. And that has been the problem. And that is why I'm glad that there are many African um, publishing companies starting to come up because, you know, Farafina has a slogan, telling our own stories. Mm. We tell our own stories and we're not trying to sell to the Western world. Then, you know, they listen and think about it. When Chinia Chebe and the others were writing and they were published, they were just writing African stories um, of their time, of course, you know, it's set at a very different time. But, you know, nobody was telling them what to write. And it's not that anybody's telling you what to write, but basically what what happens is that somebody wants success and they think, how best do I break into it? Yeah. How- okay. 
So tell I, me a little bit about that. Um, you've been you've recently been through the process. You you are you have a publisher. Uh, Farafina Books is one of your publishers now, and then you also have a Western okay. publisher. Okay, Let, let's uh, right now. Let let let, let me just uh, correct something okay. because okay. the the process is not something that when it's when you know if you haven't signed finished signing contracts and whatnot, you don't talk about it. Okay, so let's not. Okay, so let's not. Let's not jinx it. <laughs> Certainly, they are. Let's put it this way: they are one of the interested publishers right now, and we also have some um, some um, American publishers too. A couple of American publishers too, who are putting, uh, who are making offers, and right now we are considering all the offers. So that's where we are. Okay, yeah. well, why don't you tell me a little bit about? Can you tell us what your story is about, or just like a little gist? Um, maybe just a little gist, okay, but just a little gist. it's actually, you know, it. And again, it's one of these ordinary stories. Okay. Of, that's what I really wanted to know if it was an ordinary about story. It, Danny, but, but, you know, it, it does have a little bit of a political flair in it, in that, you know, uh, it's about a Ghanaian girl growing up, a half Ghanaian, half Nigerian girl. Do you know anybody like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <To> be, <see. laughs> when they the, say you write what you know. Covering her sexuality. Okay. It's about sex. It's about sex, which is yeah. sex always <laughs> sells, though. It's an emotional and sexual journey. Coming but sex over always sells, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, sex is well, a thing. But for me, it was important because when I was growing up, sex was that a taboo. Now, it was interesting because in my Nigerian family, and I was actually discussing this with somebody, my Nigerian family is Muslim, but it's a very secular family. So sex was discussed like how you eat and drink food. My aunties would talk to me about it. We were very touchy, touchy family. I mean, my aunties used to kiss me on their lips and and it was very, very different for our time. And in Ghana, if I so much as, you know, tried to inspect myself, and I remember one day literally taking a mirror and trying to, you know... See what's down there. Mysterious thing. <laughs> between my legs and you know I'm looking and wondering what it's and you know and then trying to touch and when I was caught they ground ginger and oh, stuck ginger. Not the ginger recipe. <laughs> that gin- ginger cures everything. Ginger cures everything from yeast infections to wayward children. Between your legs, you know. And and then I go to Nigeria and my aunties and my auntie is going, hey, here is the contraceptive you need. Why are you still a virgin? What's wrong with you? You you 16 years you're still a virgin. That's so interesting, being bicultural because you you. You, you are bicultural. You have Nigerian yeah. and Ghanaian. Um, my family was both Sierra Leonean and Ghanaian. And it's oh, the I same story. It. It's the okay. same story. Um, my mother is very uh, just laissez-faire and open. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when she's talking to her sisters, the, the jokes mm-hmm. they crack in Creole, it's just mm-hmm. it, you know, very, I mean, sexual or just, just, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. regular. And it just seems, it's so engaging. But then you look, Go in the Ghanaian sun, it's just so stoic. And, uh, you know, it's, just, you know, no one talks yeah. about that. It's very puritanical. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. <laughs> yep. And that's exactly how it was with my, my Nigerian family. I'd be in Nigeria, free to kiss and all that, and just, you know, fool around a little bit with a guy. And then I'll come home to sweating my bottom and, <laughs> you know, calling me names. Actually, yeah. they used to have a name for me. Yeah. Sansenyi. Oh, Sansenyi. I know that's... <laughs> and useless is an, it's a subtle way of calling you a whore, a slut. Yeah. 
Yeah, you yeah. know, and I didn't even know what a slime. Or they would say things like, "Ha, huh, one day you see, they'll put it through your nose." Oh my god! And I didn't know what it was. You know, oh, my <laughs> I later on understood was it what? Yeah, later it on you found was. out. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so here um, I was always confused. Like I, I, I loved going to Nigeria, and I had this secret life apart from my Ghanaian family. And then you know, finding out that women at, at least nowadays i know things have changed in ghana but you were not supposed to enjoy sex yeah. meanwhile my aunties in nigeria would be telling me how much they enjoyed it and i've actually one day spent the night uh in my uncle's room uh for some reason i think there was no room we had so many people in the house my, my grandfather had 24 children okay wow. so I was in the room with her, and in the middle of the night, I woke up to a whole lot of groaning and exaltation and thank you. Oh and my hug. goodness. Yeah. And the next day, I told my aunt, hey, she, she just smiled and said, hey, look, you know, too bad for you that you're not enjoying yourself. <laughs> oh <my laughs> you know? How old were you? I was, I think, about 16. Oh, so okay. So you were old enough. I was, was going to say... I was a virgin for a long time. I was a virgin until 19. And at one point when I was 18, I remember she looked at me and asked me what was wrong with me. <laughs> and, and I told her I was scared of getting pregnant. And she was like, so? Here, get some contraception. What's the matter with you? Interesting. Wow. <laughs> every, every, my Ghanaian side of me is just kind of like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, and you see, my Ghanaian side was also very churchy. Yeah. So there was all that guilt with God. You go to church and you hear the pastor preaching, and it was always fornication. And, uh, you know, I actually remember a story that one pastor told that haunted me um, that there were two people who were fornicating, and then uh, literally there was lightning that came from the sky and struck them. And they- <laughs> So I'd be enjoying myself and just be like, well, oh, when's the lightning going to strike? One more <laughs> orgasm, please don't. One more, please. Allow me this, please. Oh, oh my And to be seen. Let me get back to the writing process. For those aspiring writers who are listening, so you've written your story. Um, mm-hmm. What was the next step for you? Was it getting a literary agent? And then how was that process like? Okay, well, first of all, one, I made many mistakes, so I'll just put it out there. Many people write a story or write a book, and they finish the first draft. They have a couple of friends read it through and, you know, basically copy edit. Copy edit meaning, you know, check for grammatical errors and whatnot, and, mm-hmm. and they think, great Great job. And also your friends always want to tell you what a wonderful job you've done, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you send it off to, uh, you start shopping for an agent. Well, the first time I tried, this was way back in, I think I started the process way back in 2004. I got rejected by everybody, naturally. And they all just said the writing was not good enough. Mm. You mean the writing wasn't good enough? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't get it. But, you know, I was, I, I took it well and I hired an editor and again, at that time, though, I was trying to write a memoir, which is, you know, that, that is nonfiction. The problem with memoirs is that you need to have a platform. In other words, you need to have already a following. Say you're a journalist, you're somebody important or you're a celebrity or, 
you know, something, something that is so special that you're going to write about. If you're somebody without a platform, then it makes it, 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 it makes it for them, they're thinking, oh, we're not going to make any money yeah, out of it. sell that, yeah. Yeah, thing too was that I was writing an immigrant memoir. And in those days, they said I was ahead of my time. Um, you know, today, Americana, you know, did very well. And it's a very, it's a very, uh, a very good book. But at the time, they said I was ahead of my time. Nobody was interested in the immigrant story. Mm. So I... I still persisted and I eventually got a very good agent uh, with 30 years experience. The, pers- the same person represented the Princess Diaries and, you know, a host of other books. Okay. And um, he was, he really believed in it. And I actually hired an editor and I worked with a, a very, very good editor. But what we got back from everybody was she has no platform. Who is she? Okay. We don't write. So I eventually decided to, and I would recommend this for people who are aspiring writers, start with a short story, fiction, start with a short story. One day I had been to, and also network, you know, go to literary events. I, you know, get it. If you, you, if a writer writes a book that you like, you read it, write to the author. You don't know, I mean, don't, don't go in with, um, any ulterior motive because honestly when i contacted writers i wasn't trying to get them to help me with my career i was just literally very interested in their work and i i would write to them and i'll ask them questions or tell them what their work meant to me well one of those writers in i had so many questions that uh, and i would you know i wouldn't i don't want to mention his name but he invited me to a new yorker Festival, the New, the New Yorker magazine. They were having a festival in in New in New York. So again, taking the chance. I mean, I remember the first time he called me. I actually, hung up on him because I was so terrified. Oh my God, he called me. <laughs> what do I say? My, and and he's asking me questions, and my mind just went blank, and I hung up the phone. But it was my agent who recommended that I find a mentor. So I I went to the festival and. Through him, I met another guy too, and I was just having a conversation with him, not knowing that this was some a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. I had no idea who I was talking to. Again, just being willing to put yourself out there. Right. And uh, so he said to me, "I want to help you." Give me his email. I actually put it in the trash, and then I <laughs> out again because I thought, "Eh, what? This, uh, who is he? I didn't even know who he was, but then I thought, yeah, why bother? Again, just taking a chance on people. I'm always willing to meet people, talk to, I'll talk to anybody. Hey, I'll talk to a frog and the frog will talk to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I fished out his email and I wrote to him and I said, here, I'm writing it. I wrote a short story. I just went home and I wrote a short, sto- short story and I said, here are the three, three pages so you read it, and if you don't like my writing, you can just tell me to go to blazes and leave you alone. <laughs> to my surprise, he wrote back and said he loved the story. Could I send the rest of it? I sent it to him. It was just a short story of about 22 pages. He took it, and he said, we're going to publish it in our magazine. And that's when I started Googling him and asking people, who is he? Right. <laughs> Turned out to be uh, the publisher of McSweeney's, which is one of the um, leading literary magazines in the U.S. Anyway, they published the story, got nominated for the Kane Prize for African oh, Lemon. Wow. No, and it was 
this this is what happened. Uh, by this time, I was divorced from my first agent because, you know, it's not because he did anything wrong, but we parted ways when uh, the book didn't work out. And, you know, he uh, so then um, my writer friend sent my story to my agent, to my current agent. She read it. She called me and said, I want to represent you. So this is the way it worked. But normally what people do is they write a book and they start looking for an agent. I would say, you know, write a write a book, but before you even start to look for an agent, get, you know, join a club, a writer's group or something. Don't be with just friends who are going to tell you what you want to hear. You have to really check your ego at the door because you may think you've written something very, very extraordinary, but people are going to read it and think, eh, this one doesn't hold my interest. And you have to be willing to listen. You have to, because writing is a very painful thing to have somebody, because yeah. if people are not honest with you, when you start to query uh, agents, they're going to tell you no. So if you finally feel as though your, your, your manuscript is truly, truly polished, has no grammatical errors and whatnot, then you begin a query. And you, you basically... What you do is you research agents. They have lots of sites like Agent Query. That's one of the best sites I know of. And, you know, find um, places that have agent lessons and then look for an agent that represents the kind of book that you want to write. Or even just your favorite books, books that you like. Most of the time in the dedication pages, the authors will thank their agent. Mm. So you know the agent, and then you go look up their contact information, and then you query them. Chances are that, you know, they're going to tell you yes or no. Most of the time they will say no, but if you start to get feedback that says something like, oh, I'll be interested in looking at it if you will rewrite, you know, then you know you are onto something. When the agents actually take the trouble to tell you what is wrong with your manuscript, that means that you've written quite a decent piece of work. That means that it has potential. So I'll take the advice, I'll work on it, and then I'll try again. The other thing, too, is you don't always need an agent. You can also try submitting directly to small publishers. And it's a long journey, but sometimes it works you can find an agent that way and then i have a friend one of my good friends uh carla brady she's right here in the washington dc area very successful she and i started together we belong to the same writers group i didn't have her guts she wrote a really good book we loved it and she couldn't find an agent because again you know she was a black woman writing about a 40 something black woman who was horny and had sworn, <laughs> but then was trying to reevaluate all her relationships and find somebody. It was a very cheeky, litty kind of thing. Yeah. Nobody wanted it. So she self-published. And she won some awards, and eventually Simon and & Schuster and other people came back on it, and I think the book was auctioned to Simon and Schuster. They 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 took it, and so now she's an established author. So it's a very long journey, it's filled with heartbreak, but you have to be persistent. You have to be humble, also willing to listen. Um, Let, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit uh, now that we're on the topic of um, 
publishing. And we, we did mention before that there's some really emerging, some strong publishers on the continent. And for the listeners who are on the continent, um, can you give us, well, first off, can you kind of compare and contrast some of the advantages and disadvantages of going with, let's say, a Farafina or Cassava Republic versus, um, I mean, of course, Simon & Schuster has all the apparatus and legs to, you know, to kind of get your book everywhere. But if you are a young aspiring writer, um, African, and let's say you're on the continent, or if you even if you're in the U.S. and you really want to kind of sell your book to um, an, an African publisher, can you give us some of the advantages and disadvantages of that? And then also, um, is there a separate way to reach out to some of these uh, presses? I mean, first of all, the nice thing about the smaller press, the, the presses in Africa, is that you don't need an agent. Just no. follow their submission guidelines okay. and go. You know, as a matter of fact, when I submitted to Farafina, I'll tell you this, my agent didn't do it. She was only focused on U.S. publishers. And I told her, I kept telling her that I wanted Farafina. Um, I don't blame her because usually agents like to work with people that they already have contact with. And it's time. You know, she's a very busy person. She's not handling just me. She's handling so many other clients. So, and then, you know, you've got clients bringing in a lot of money. You don't have time to go um, looking for uh, somebody that, you, 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 you know, you have to first of all reach out to them, ask them questions before you even figure out how to send a manuscript to them. So she was not, um, it's not that she wasn't interested, but she hadn't come around to my way of thinking yet. So I did it on my own. I went through their submission uh, process and it took three months. I mean, when I sent it to them, within two days, they wrote to me and said, we're interested, send us the whole novel. Well, I did. Is the the pay better? I mean, do they, is it comparable? No, the the pay is not as much. It all depends too. If you go with, there there are traditional publishers here in the US, the smaller presses, they don't pay that much either. The smaller presses don't pay that much. Some of them may pay you about $10,000 advance. Some may pay twenty-five. Some may pay five. And some may pay zero advance. And then you have to wait for the royalties to come in to get some money. Mm-hmm. Farafina and Cassava, they too, it depends. Sometimes they pay um, a little advance and sometimes uh, they don't. So it all depends upon, you know, the value. I think what they do is when they read your work, then they decide, hey, is this thing going to be big or small? So let's make a bid. And then they're going to make a bid. So it all depends upon how they view your book. But people have the impression that uh, U.S. publishers pay more. Yes, if you're going with the big names. But those big names are not investing in beginning authors. And by beginning authors, I don't mean that you don't know how to write but it's your first work. They are investing more and more in people that they already have or people who are already published because they don't want to do the work it takes to really uh, push somebody's career. It used to be in the past they did that. Now they don't do that anymore. So they keep publishing the same few authors that they know. It's very hard for for you to break in as a new um, author, even with an agent. The big people are not, you know, yeah. willing to do that. So it's the smaller publishers who are doing the work. Well, the smaller publishers don't pay 
that much. So to me, I don't see a difference, uh, a big difference financially, because I don't know what we are going to settle for yet. Now, if you go with a big publisher, there is also a disadvantage. If you're not somebody that's already established or you're not somebody who is scandal worthy and you've got, you know, headlines everywhere, they, they, you get lost in the system because they've got big, yeah. big publishers and big writers uh, who, who, whom they have paid, say, a million yeah, so they'll make sure their investment. Uh, and that happens, you know. My my agent, you know, sometimes has uh, writers who have commanded a million um, for their advance, right? So if you've got, you know, if you, if you've got that, then you you have to make sure you earn back the money that you paid the author. So they're going to invest in the author. But a debut author, you're lucky if you start off with say, you know, your agency is is an exception rather than the rule. Uh, UM was an exception rather than the rule. But when Chimamanda started, she went with a small publisher. Al Gonkin was the one that published uh, Purple Hibiscus because, you know, for a while there, nobody was interested in that brilliant book, right? right? So if you're going to go with a small publisher, then why not give the African publisher a chance? Because let me tell you something. I don't know many of the, but the South African publishers, um, the Nigerian publishers, especially these top two that I know of, they are willing to invest in you. Also, they are they're not going to box you into a cliche situation, you know, because they are they are also Africans. They 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 know that there is more to us than just slavery and all the other hard, uh, painful subjects, you know. Mm-hmm. So. And when you're with a smaller publisher, they give you more of the attention. The other thing too is that um, that even if you start on the African continent, if the book, a well-written book, will always find a way to climb out. You'll find uh, Western publishers coming to buy rights to the book. I mean, that's what has happened to a lot of um, a lot of writers. You look at. Even Amateidu, whose book has been published in the U.S. also. So people are willing uh, to give you a chance. So to me, if you can start wherever you can get a foot in the door. Now, the thing is to make sure, because we had some offers that I turned down. There are some publishers that came forward from the U.S. that for me were not worth it. Mm. Turned them down. Um, because the book, you, a book can die depending upon who publishes it. Mm-hmm. After publication, what effort is put into publicity is what is going to make or break the book. Right. And so a book can die if you don't have... And, and look at Cassava Republic. Anytime I go on Twitter, they are tweeting constantly about the long-throated me- memoir, about all their their, their books. Farafina, too, is always doing that. They're always showing up in my newsfeed, pushing their authors, you know? Wow, you've given us so much to think about as, um, as aspiring writers. Um, are there any last words, advice that you want to give uh, to, to some of us out here? Um, and we'll close out with that. This one is very important. Do not write with publication in mind. Don't think about publishing at all. Remove that because the minute you start to think about publishing or who's going to read it, it stifles creativity. You have to write the book in your heart that you want to write. 
write passionately, write as if nobody would ever read it. Write the kind of book that scares you, that makes you think, oh my God, what is going to happen if people read it? Don't worry. Imagine you are writing a book for your most intimate friends who are going to read this book. Don't think about publication. Forget about that. If you think about publication, you will not succeed. It's a paradox. Finish first. Do all the work. Then start to think about publication. You see Ija Pong, you guys. You Google her. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very we much. We can't wait to see what uh, what comes out for you. Um, definitely keep us posted. Keep me posted on that. I want to I want to read that when it comes out and cheer from the sidelines. You're like, oh, Thank I know you. her. <laughs> very much, Teresa. It's been a pleasure. This is awesome. Thank you so much. That wraps up another edition of the Sacropolitan Life podcast. For more tips on curating a life you love, visit thesacropolitanlife.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. The more you comment, the higher we rank, which makes it easier for people to find us. Have questions or comments? Tweet me at Life. Till next episode, this is Clarissa Banner reminding you to stay grounded in love, truth, and culture. Peace.